Good morning once again for those of you that were not here earlier. My name is Peter and I am one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, I want to share a word with you um, about Christmas. This Christmas is special for us because it's our first Christmas here with you all as the pastor. And uh, so I'm I'm super excited to uh, share this message with you. But I was thinking about what's exciting about Christmas. What is the meaning of Christmas? And uh, what popped into my mind is the image of the Titanic sinking. And, <laughs> and the reason I was thinking about this is Christmas is great. Baby Jesus came into the world, right? Or Jesus came in the, in the form of a baby. And that's all exciting and all, but that's not exactly what we're celebrating. So imagine you're on the Titanic and the ship is going down and it's, it's not totally vertical yet, but let's say for the sake of argument, it's like 45 degrees, right? And you're hanging on for dear life and then out of nowhere flies on board Superman, the man of steel himself. And he says, I'm here. And then he hangs onto the rail and begins to go down with the ship with you. There's not much celebration there, folks. For a moment, you're, you're glad that he's here. But really, the celebration is betting on the fact that he is going to save you, not go down with you. And this is really the meaning of Christmas. That Jesus came. That's great. It's Emmanuel, God with us. But Emmanuel isn't God with us for five minutes, drowning with us. Right? But it's Emmanuel, God with us forever. Us with God and he with us. Unto us a child is born, and that's great, Because this child is going to grow up into an adult. And he's going to complete the mission for which he came in the first place. So Christmas is the fulfillment of this great divine promise. And the meaning of Christmas is not so much in his coming as it is in his death and resurrection. And the part that makes this dying and rising again for us so fantastic for me is that I don't have to be pretty. I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be better than anyone, especially the person that I imagine in my own head that I need to be. But it was a gift of God. God freely gave us the gift of His Son as an atoning sacrifice For our sins. And this is the real meaning of Christmas. And this is what I want to share with you today. Now, when I think about Christmas, I always think about my own salvation experience. I am not one of those people who have a very neat and clean story. I think those are great and it makes for better storytelling. But I'm somebody who uh, may be a little stubborn, maybe something, but... I like to say that I was saved about four times. And I remember four distinct times when I felt converted. But 
it didn't last or it didn't quite get the job done. But by the fourth time, on the fourth swing of the hammer, the nail was in. And uh, through these four times of experiencing salvation, I have come to believe that I am saved. That God reached down, grabbed a hold of me, that I was without God in this world, unable to help myself, unable to change the direction and course of my life, that I was going to have to bear the full brunt and weight and consequences of my actions and inactions and who I am and who I'm not, that I was going to be a victim mainly of myself. And God came, he stopped the train, changed the tracks, and set me on a new path, ultimately into eternity. But even today, I get the taste of that. But I didn't do it in my own strength. That's the key. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me as a gift. Christmas is a celebration of the fact, not, not just that Jesus was given to us, but that he was given to us not as payment, not as wages earned by us, but as a gift. So what does all of this mean? Well, it takes us all the way back to Genesis. This is when the promise of Christmas was first given. So three things we're going to talk about today. But I sure got a lot of positive feedback about giving out the three points in the beginning. So I think I'm going to do that every Sunday. And if I don't, you just know I'm going to be pointless. Okay? So here's my three points. The promise of God, the endeavors of man, and implications. Okay? First, the promise of God. Verse 8. Here is poor Abram. He's not Abraham yet. We'll get to that later. Poor Abram. He's lived a really tough life. He's left his homeland. And uh, you got to understand what a homeland was back in Abraham's time. It was the ultimate everything. It was your alarm system. It was your 401k. It was your savings account. It was your labor, labor force. It was... Anything that you considered important in life was encapsulated in your hometown. But Abraham left everything behind, and he left. So he leaves his homeland. He endures a famine. Pharaoh tries to kill him. He's separated from his one point of security, that is his nephew. He fights a war, and on top of all that, he is childless. And to be childless in Abraham's time was to bear the shame of being insignificant because your significance was in your legacy, was in what you were leaving behind, right? Your succession plan was the core of your identity. And Abraham wasn't going to have that. And so here he is living this very uh, tumultuous and insecure life. And so in verse 8, Abraham asks God, how can I be sure? Remember, God is one of many gods at this time. And there are many gods competing for Abraham's attention. 
right? And God is beginning to reveal himself to humanity as the true and only living God. And he sort of, it's what theologians call progressive revelation. God doesn't just show up and blind us, but he layer by layer, baby steps, begins to reveal himself to us through history. And so God is doing this with Abraham. And God makes Abraham a great promise of land, of security, of home, of, it, of, of progeny. And so here Abraham is going, how can I be sure, God? Look at my life. Everything I've had, I left it behind. I barely survived the famine. The king of Egypt is trying to kill me. I'm separated from the one person I can trust. How can I trust you. And verse 9 is an incredibly strange response. Right? Bring me, what does he say? A heifer. And then he lists all these other animals. What do you think that means? What's happening here? I relate to this story um, uh, from my own engagement process with Susie. Yes, you're going to get a Susie story. It is Christmas after all. Um, You know, as you know, I pursued her for four years, and she foolishly rejected me for four years. And who's eating their words now, right? (sighs) These insults just don't heal the pain, though, as much as I like them to. So we are here we are. She breaks up with me on... January 1st, 2007, March 25th, we're engaged, right? And August 16th, we're set to get married, right? This is all right after she graduated college. Uh, and um, uh, it's, it's been a really rushed and sudden uh, emotional process as well as logistically. And there's a lot of catching up to do. You know, I often think ideally you want marriage to be the next step, not this huge leap into outer darkness, you know. But here we are about to take this leap, and we're on the phone paying 25 cents a minute long distance, and there's just pressure we can't handle, and we're on the phone. And finally, we get down to the core issue that uh, Susie has with not just the marriage, but with me in general, and, and uh, maybe even with, uh, I don't know, bigger things, but she says, Peter, you've had, you know, a few other girls before me. You had girlfriends before me. And Susie had never dated before, and I was her first boyfriend. And so I know her stock just went up and mine went down. <laughs> <clears throat> we all love idealism. <laughs> there she is, living. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> she says to me, Susie says to me, Peter, how can I be sure I'm not just the next one? Ah. (laughs) Just like now, I had no answer. I had nothing to say to Susie. How can she be sure? And so I stayed silent. And then a stroke of genius I said, bring me a seven-year-old dog, a three-year-old squirrel. (laughs) What's happening here? If you look in the Hebrew, 
I'll finish the story later. If you, if you look in the Hebrew, this word for making a covenant says God made a covenant with Abraham. This word made is actually the word karat in the Hebrew. And I, I remember memorizing that when I was in uh, grad school because karat is, means to cut. And uh, I took karate and karat, chop, cut. And so God is not making a covenant. He is cutting a covenant. He is cutting a deal. And uh, put on your maturity years here. I want to give you a little um, uh, lesson in words here. This is where we get the word uh, testimony from. You know, when you testify, only men were allowed to testify. And the way people made promises to each other back then was, it wasn't just my word, but it was uh, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, literally kind of promise. And so uh, men, when they made promises to each other, they would put their hands under uh, each other's thighs is the euphemism that the scriptures use. But that's not actually what it says. Meaning if, if I should break my promise, you get to cut my future off. Right? That's, why, that's where we get the word testify. Meaning if I lie here, then I'm cut. Okay? And so this is exactly what God is doing. God is cutting a covenant with Abraham. It is if you break the terms of this covenant or promise, then you are going to be cut. That is, you're going to die. And whatever has befallen these animals is going to befall you. You are going to be cut in half. There's a, there's a groundbreaking work that a um, theologian named uh, Jeffrey Niehaus did uh, a, a couple of decades ago. He wrote a, a, a book, sort of direction-changing book called God at Sinai. And he goes into, um, uh, he talks about theophanies in Scripture. And theophanies is a fancy word for points in Scripture when God shows up visibly. Right? And so here we have an instance of God showing up. But here is the historical context which brings wonderful, groundbreaking meaning to what this whole story is about. Back then, you had great conquering kings called suzerains. Right? And you had under kings, kings that were being conquered called vassals or vassal kings. And what would normally happen is a suzerain, the great king, would come and conquer a land, but instead of establishing and imposing his own government on the conquered people, what the suzerain would do is work with the government that's already in place. And so they would take the king, name this king an underking, that is, a vassal, and they would draft a covenant between the two kings. And this uh, you know, contract of sorts would spell out the stipulations. Your people must pay this and this sort of tax in this and this instance. Your people must never. Your people must always. You must and you never. And it spells out everything. It's sort of a policy-driven uh, uh, government system. And to inaugurate 
this new government that was going to reign the land, the vassal king would take animals such as these, would cut them in half, and then he would walk between the animals, symbolizing that whatever has befallen these animals shall happen to me should I or my people break any of the stipulations in the covenant. Now, that's what's supposed to happen. This is why Abraham doesn't go, huh? He goes, oh, okay, animals, sure, you and I, we're going to make a contract. But what happens here? In verse 17 to 18, God, the suzerain king, appears, theophany, in the form of a a smoking fire pot or oven. Right? He walks between the animals. Rather, than Abraham, the vassal king. Symbolizing that, should Abraham or his descendants break any terms of the covenant, then not Abraham, but God himself pays the price. Abraham does not die. God dies. This is shocking. Abraham disobeys, and God pays the price. This is God guaranteeing the terms of the covenant at the expense of his own life. And I want you to know, there is no other instance in recorded history of a suzerain king ever walking between the animals. What do you do with this? What do you make of this? What does this mean? It means that God wasn't making a deal with Abraham where Abraham does his part in exchange for God doing his part. There is no Deal here. Abraham, this is my covenant, but this covenant is not about your faithfulness, but it's about my faithfulness. And I will do everything in my power to make sure this covenant is carried forth. It's God's absolute and permanent guarantee for Abraham's welfare. I will protect and preserve you from all invaders from here on forth forever. I will never, ever break this covenant. And furthermore, you can never break the terms of this covenant. This covenant is unbreakable. Neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Abraham. Where is this love of God found? 
this guarantee of safety and life. Abraham became, from this moment, the father of our faith. And you know what faith is? Faith isn't, I believe something, therefore I'm going to do just perfectly according to what I believe so that I become by my works and performance a righteous person, thereby guaranteeing this security from life. That's not what faith is. At this moment, Abraham becomes a father of faith because God took Abraham out into the night air And he looked up into the sky, and God said, you see all of these stars? As many stars as there are in the sky, there you will have these many descendants. And he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He put his faith in God because he considered his own body, and it was dead. There was nothing that this body could do to make that happen. You know, the scientists tell us there are more stars in the universe and there are grains of sand on all the shores of all the beaches on the whole planet. Can you imagine grabbing a handful of sand and letting it go slowly and watching the sand dripping and blowing in the wind, trying to count those stars. And God says, try to count the stars if you can. Try to count just one handful of sand grains. And to believe that not your body, not the work of your hands, not your competence, not your ability, but the grace of God, the word of God, the power of God, the love of God, The commitment of God will do it. To believe that, that's faith. All, every single person were unfaithful after Abraham. In fact, Abraham himself was unfaithful in the very next chapter. We don't last very long. Here Abraham is the father of our faith. And he didn't even last one chapter. So, good luck with that and amen, right? (laughs) Junior year, I was wrestling with this question, how can I be sure? This was the very fourth time I was to be saved. I was in the Upper Peninsula on the shores of Lake Huron. I had just seen with my own eyes the northern lights. And just the night before, I had that incident where I threw my journal into the river and it washed up ashore and I tried to burn it and it just smoked up the whole room. And I just felt like I could not save myself. And this very story of Abraham receiving the covenant that God himself guarantees came to my mind. And I realized for the fourth and final time that I was not committing my life to Christ as much as I was receiving his commitment to me. And I believe to this day that that was why that was the last time. I think I would be getting saved every week if it wasn't for this story. And so back to the engagement story. 
There I am in silence, unable to answer. And Susie says, and this is the night before, the, in the morning, she was to drive with her mother five hours to Michigan from Chicago to, uh, to attend her own bridal shower. And uh, I, might, I don't remember, but my guess is probably two or three in the morning at this time. And I'm silent, and Susie says to me, Peter, I can't do it. I can't marry you. And she breaks off the engagement. And I have nothing to say. But we stay on the phone because you know how those emotional moments go. If you hang up the phone, it's, there's a finality to it. It's like signing the contract. So we were both just silent on the phone for what felt like hours. I think maybe it was maybe an hour or so. We were silent on the phone together. And then I had another moment. And I said, Susie, this is a marriage covenant. A covenant isn't, a, isn't primarily a promise that you and I are making to each other. But it's a promise that God makes with me and with you. I will love you, not because of my love for you, but because of God's love for me. And I really do believe it was the Holy Spirit helping me. Because there is no way my, my brain was working at that time. And now I have no theological precedence of understanding this in my own brain prior to this moment. I said, Susie, this, this isn't something we're promising to each other. We are receiving God's promise together. And so I don't know, and I don't know what to say, but I know God's faithful, and I really want you, and I'm asking you to enter into this promise with me. And as we grow closer to God together, we will grow closer to each other. And after having broken up for an hour, she said, okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> Let me read you Isaiah chapter 6, chapter 9, verse 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If you must pick a Christmas passage, pick this one. Would be my suggestion. This is us receiving the life that God has for us based on His love, His promises, His strength, His consistency, His commitment. Has nothing to do with us. We are merely recipients. And the government that is the reign the power, the sovereignty, that is the, the suzerain king will remain suzerain king over our lives. And how do we know that God will do this? How can we trust God? How can Abraham know 
Because God guaranteed it with his own life. And Abraham was unfaithful. And one of his descendants, David, mentioned here, was unfaithful. And every single person in between and after, they were unfaithful, unable to bear the weight of the promise on their own shoulders until the Prince of Peace came. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And so we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, descendant of Abraham, one of the stars that Abraham looked up and saw, bearing the government on his shoulders for us that we might live under it, receiving the life that he has for us. And this is faith, that Jesus Christ paid the punishment for our sins and he receives into himself the just consequences for all of our actions and inactions of all that we lack, all that we are, and all that we are not. Past, present, future. The whole of who you are now freed up to live life the way God intended you to live. But, Abraham doesn't learn. We go on to the endeavors of man, verse 18 to 21. Very interesting here. So Abraham and Sarah, they don't believe God. They believed God, but then they don't believe God. Do you relate to this? And so they thought, you know, God probably needs some help. They did. This is the exact thought that went through their minds. And so Sarah's thinking, you know, let me work some loopholes here. Because in our culture, in our time, servants are considered property. And I am allowed to bestow my property as a gift onto my husband. And my husband is allowed to do whatever he wants with a gift. So let me give my servant Hagar to Abraham as a gift. And he can then lie with her. And she will bear him a son. And thus God's word will be fulfilled. Praise God. Everybody's happy. Win-win, right? God gets to maintain his reputation. We get to technically praise him for being faithful. We get a son. People don't look at us weird anymore because now we have uh, progeny. But... God says in verse 18 to 21, But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. You know why that verse is so interesting? Because God is making, okay, listen, God is making a clear distinction between blessing and covenant. So here is Abraham. He's saying, look, a son is born just as you have spoken, and I have named him Ishmael. Then God says, Abraham, I do love you. And to demonstrate my grace to you, I am going to bless Ishmael just as you have asked. But, 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 my covenant is with Isaac, who will be born to you. By my grace, 
by my power, by my doing, according to my word, which I spoke to you next year. Ishmael represents man's endeavor to bless himself. And Isaac represents the promise of God. And this is so important because God loves you. And he's not this black and white kind of God who says, nope, that's not my, nope, nope, nope. He's not just chopping us down all day. Where would we be if he did that? At what point are we perfect? So he is working. Progressive revelation, right? He's working to reveal himself and grow us and mature us. And so, I'm telling you, living in America, because of who you are and all the resources you have and all the great scheming you are capable of doing, if you want to live a blessed life, you can. If you want to bless yourself, go ahead. Do what you got to do. Use the strength of your hands, the will of your might. Have a great life. Bless yourself. God might even lend you a helping hand. But you be rest assured. God's promise is with Isaac, not Ishmael. And I want to tell you, there is a promise of God over your life. And he will bring it to pass. And whether you are able to bless yourself or whether you feel like all you ever do is curse yourself, God's love remains and he will do it. But I want to ask you, are you willing to just settle for blessings? Is that good enough for you? Or do you want to see the promises of God fulfilled in your life? And for that, it's not your works, but it's your heart. It's your faith, your trust in God. And for that, we have to die. Now, what are the implications? There are clear, there's a clear distinction in my mind between the lived life and the received life. A life of trusting God and walking step by step in faith. Yes, we can bless ourselves, but that puts me in sort of a survival and, and thriving and scarcity mentality. And so here I want to make a distinction and I want to have four, I want to share with you four implications. Number one, humility. What if life really was a gift from God? You notice that in verse uh, chapter 15 and 16, Abraham's name is actually Abram, right? And in the Hebrew, that means exalted father. And then in chapter 17, we have his <clears throat> new name, Abraham, and it means father of a multitude. Abram goes from exalted father to Abraham Father of a multitude. What's the difference between being an exalted father and the father of a multitude? 
When you say exalted father, the emphasis is on exalted. It's about you. You are exalted. But when you say father of a multitude, the emphasis is on the multitude. That is to say, Abraham begins to understand over the course of his life that though he has been blessed, he has been blessed to be a blessing. That Abraham exists not to be the exalted father, but to be a father to a multitude. That is, his life is not about him, but about others, about those who are to come long after he is gone. That it's not about him, but it's about ultimately Jesus. And so God says to Abraham, blessed to be a blessing. That's where we get the phrase. When, Abra- when God first calls Abraham, he says, you are blessed to be a blessing. You are at your shining best just a conduit, a means to other people. It's about the multitude, not about you. It's people and the family of God and the purposes of God. And this is the lesson that Abraham begins to learn over a lifetime. Humility. Second, courage. When I think about this life that God is calling me into, calling me to live, that I'm not just to live my life, but to receive my life from God. My first thought is, woohoo! I don't have to be responsible for my life. God is responsible for my life. But here's what I'm beginning to see. That without the promises of God in my life, I am supposed to be responsible for my life But what responsibility feels like is fearfulness. So I don't know how not to be responsible apart from also feeling fearful. And so I oscillate back and forth between being responsible, that is controlling, or playing the victim card and saying, that's not me, that's not mine. Without God in my life, I only know fearful responsibility on the one hand or playing the victim. But when God is the one who is guaranteeing my life by his grace and I receive his life, then the anxiety is separated from the responsibility. And I can be responsible, but with joy. And that's called courage. Third, Love. The fact that God is the bearer of the weight of our life, that the government of our life rests not on our shoulders, but on Jesus' shoulders, it radically changes my ability to love people. I can love you. I can love even myself or my children or my wife, my friends. I can do that without playing games. That is to say, What we see here is a God who never breaks his relationship with us. He never uses the relationship to manipulate us, to get us to obey or to be good or stay on his side, be loyal to him. 
the relationship is never on the line. That's by definition now what a covenant is. God has made a covenant with us. On the other hand, you and I, we break relationships all the time. Using our tone, we threaten. We sometimes literally walk out of the room signaling abandonment to the person we are hoping to control or manipulate. We pre-abandon people. And I know that in relationships, I can easily become a consumer. What can I get out of this person or out of this relationship? I can degenerate into perfectionism or hang on to resentment or harbor hatred. I can become violent. I can feel insecure. I can be judgmental. I can be unforgiving. But as I begin to understand God's love for me and allow his love to be lived out through me in relationships, I can be patient. I can be action-oriented. I can be inconvenienced and inefficient in my relationships. Lastly, last implication I can experience peace and rest. Now, this is a really powerful point. Notice also, Sarai is named Sarai in chapters 15 and 16, but then she is changed to Sarah. So Sarai means princess, but Sarah becomes noblewoman. Do you understand what this is? She was without child. She was just a princess with no honor because she didn't have children. That was just the culture back then. But here she is now. She's a noble woman. Finally, her shame is lifted. Her head is lifted up. And God alone did it. Now look at Sarai's course, her life course. She was bearing the weight of this shame as a human being, unable to lift her head. And then in her humanly shining moment, she tries to remove her own shame. And what does she do? She has her husband sleep with another woman. Good job, Sarai. You sure removed your shame from yourself. And God says, no, Sarah, you shall, no, Sarah, you shall be named Sarah. You will no longer be princess without honor, but you will be noble woman. And I will be the lifter of your head. And because I did it, you will give me glory. You can try your whole life to remove your own shame. You can't do it. I don't think so. You know why this is so helpful for me? Because it means that I don't have to settle for a lesser of two evils. Here is plan A, God's best for me. And then here is plan B, what I've slapped together. And I feel like I have to settle for that because I've messed up. I've done unforgivable things. I have hurt people. I have changed the course of history and of events in my life. I was supposed to be a medical doctor. Here I am, just a pastor. Plan B, second best, lesser of two evils. 
right? There is no plan B. There is no plan A because there's only one plan and God's grace and his covenant with us commits us to his one and only plan. You don't have to ever settle and you are not settling. The life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. This is God's life for you. So this Christmas, experience the true meaning of Christmas. Be freed up to be humble, to be courageous, to be loving, and to be at rest. God bears your life on his shoulders, and he guarantees it with his blood. Would you receive God's promises with me today? Amen. Would you pray? Father, you are the lifter of our heads. You were not repulsed by us. You did not keep us at arm's length, but you embraced us. You came close. You are God, Emmanuel. And today we remember and celebrate the imminence of God, the nearness of God. And you love us, and you have demonstrated it by giving us your Son. And so, Lord Jesus, we look to you today. You are our God and Savior. Scriptures tell us that if you will confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, that you are receiving then the life he has for you and you are being grafted in to his promise for you. And if that's you today, this morning, and you want to say yes to God's promise over your life, I want to invite you to lift your hand today as you're praying. Amen. 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 God, I give to you this room with lifted hands, seated here with hearts open to you. We confess to you on this Christmas Sunday that we are not able, capable of bearing the weight of our own lives. It is too much, and we are not meant, created, wired to be able to bear the weight of it. This is your life. It belongs to you, so we give it back to you. And even as you have given us the gift and life of your son, we give our lives back to you on this morning. And so we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And God's people together said, Amen.